0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat and welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. Dr. Kwa Kia sung is with us today to talk about alternative histories. Among other things, he's also an activist, a former politician, an icon in many ways of Malaysian civil society history, uh, an educator. I mean, you wear many hats, so it's good to have you with us today.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So, um, this is Malaysia Day Week, and uh, as you know, questions of identity will come up, questions of history, who falls under the term Malaysia or is it still Malaya-centric, so on and so forth? So it would be good to get some of your thoughts on the importance of history, particularly the politics around it, right? Because history is not just a bunch of stories. It's basically the story of how we became to be the people we are. Right?
1: Thanks, for, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, yes, especially um, on this this week, which is Malaysia Week, we find that history is... Viewed in kind of the mist, in a mist, and people come out from. I've seen it on radio. I've seen it on the print media. I've seen it on the cinema, etc. And uh, it's viewed in different sort of narratives. And uh, it's quite good and well that people have their own views. But I think when it comes to uh, viewing history, there's certain kind of. Research that had been done by different historians, I think that that's important. Mm-hmm. For example, we've just been through the emergency period and we're just we're kind of uh, marking the, the anniversary of the emergency. Mm-hmm. And we find that, the, for example, the, I would think that the most important record of the emergency would be the record by Anthony Short, mm-hmm. who was at the time of the emergency, at the end of the emergency, a, a lecturer at Malayan University. Mm-hmm. And he was contracted by the university as well as by the Malaysian government, Malayan government at the time, to record that history, and he was, he was avail all manner of, of resources, including classified documents, mm-hmm. to record that history. But after he finished in 1968, it was not accepted by the government. Mm-hmm. You know? So, when you terms to talk about history, I would think that the most important piece of history that has been researched and written would be that Record by Anthony Short, mm-hmm. which was finally uh, published by Fabric uh, Muller, I think, in London in uh, 1975. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. pretty. That's about 15 years after the after the end of the emergency. Yeah. So that's that's important. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about historians, I've I've heard historians on the radio as well, and 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 you may be a historian of of a very. Uh, I think the historians or, or social scientists or academics uh, academics in a, quite a particular section of academia, mm-hmm. of, of knowledge, you know. For example, I, I did my research on just one small aspect of the emergency when the official records was uh, declassified in Britain, mm-hmm. and I did my research there to mainly find out about the, uh, the thinking of Western imperialism, not just British colonialism, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the whole of Western imperialism on the emergency, but that is just one section of it, you know. Some other historians like Kong Kim Hong that had done research on the, the whole politics of the Malayan Union and Federation of Malaya proposals, etc. So his is there. But Anthony Short is the whole episode. And so I would think that it's important that we go to these sources. To yeah, uh, to
0: yeah so, I mean, there's so many aspects of our history that has yet to be uncovered. But judging from your interests over time, it seems like you're not quite satisfied with A, how our recollection of the emergency has turned out and B, the existing literature on it. It feels like, based on what you just said as well, there's still a lot of gaps that needs to be addressed.
1: Oh, definitely. I think that, uh, especially when it comes to Malaysia Day, mm-hmm. Malaysia Day is like a celebration of patriotism. Mm-hmm. And patriotism means a celebration of patriots. So, who are the patriots in Malaysian history? You know, I would think that the people, as far as world history is concerned... The patriots are the people who, uh, for example, fought against fascism in the, in the Second World War. You know, to me, that's important to be called a patriot. And the people who fought against colonialism, you know, Franz Fanon's uh, famous works on the wretched of the earth, etc. These are uh, narratives of what the anti-colonial struggle was about. Mm-hmm. So to me, to be a patriot in this country, uh, it's, it's important that these patriots are acknowledged in our history. You know, people who paid with their lives during mm-hmm. the second World war, people who paid with lives in the emergency, but the emergency was a very serious thing yeah. uh, it, was, it was something like uh, eleven thousand fatalities as well as uh, about more than two thousand fatalities among civilians mm-hmm. so it's not a, it's not a, a you know, too minor two, thing at all it, wasn't yeah. my, no, it depends on who you are as well yeah. somebody like me english educated middle class living in Batupahat, the emergency wasn't anything mm-hmm, <laughs> I mm-hmm. could say I could tell you that emergence from 48 to I was born in 50 to 50 to 60 was just a, a walk in the park for me mm-hmm. uh, you know but is that the history from my narrative
0: is yeah. not so how do you approach this topic is it as an objective scholar just curious to fill in the blanks of existing knowledge or are you committed as say a socialist historian are you a leftist are you necessarily driven by an agenda when you look at these facts
1: no, I think I think it's a question of being a
0: socialist or or, or anything, any kind of
1: uh, ologist is not very important because you look at somebody like Anthony Short and his his record of the emergency. Anthony Short wasn't a socialist or anybody, and he remember that the introduction to his book, huge thick Tomb, mm-hmm. was written by uh, Weatherstone, who was the chief secretary of the colonial government at the mm-hmm. time. So these people are not socialists, but they are they are at pains to uh, the record all that happened in the emergency. Mm-hmm. And so there were, were unpalatable things that happened during the emergency. For example, the massacre at Batangkali. Mm-hmm. Others, for example, uh, the burning of the whole village of Kacau, which just near Kajang, mm-hmm. and so forth. Was that the reason why the Malaysian government uh, did not accept his version of the emergency? Mm-hmm. And there were other things about, you know, how the, the emergency is portrayed as a very Chinese uh, insurrection. Mm-hmm. And the book, for example, has got lots of records of the Malays that, uh, who were in the insurrection.
0: Can you clarify that a lot more? Because that's the perception people begin with. Yeah. That when they think about emergency, they think about communists, and they're going to think about Chinese people, right? So right. set the record straight for us. What was it like demographically? I think that in the first year of the emergency, was something like
1: a thousand Malays had been detained. You know, some of the leaders on the MLP were also detained. Uh, and... Uh, be following those, it came out that the tenth regiment, for example, mm-hmm. of the of the uh, MNLA, the Malayan National Liberation Army, were mainly Malays. Mm-hmm. You know, so these are questions of objectivity that I'm more concerned about as an academic. Mm-hmm. It's not so much whether I'm a socialist or, or whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. and that, that's what I think is important yeah.
0: Some people would say that while we need to recover the full story of the emergency, it's still nonetheless a peninsular centric event, right? In the sense that yes, it's important, but when we frame Malaysia more broadly and the politics of independence, the politics of forming a nation, the emergency might not be so relevant for, say, what happened in Sarawak and Sabah. What do you say to that?
1: I think Sarawak also had also saw uh, an insurrection. Mm-hmm. We, you know, the Separate present, from the, the NCP, that, right? That's right. Yeah. that's right. And the present uh, SUPP that is part of the Baratulah National at one time wasn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you'd be surprised. So that's, uh, that's a very interesting story that also has to be seen. Mm-hmm.
0: So where do you situate yourself in terms of the discourse itself? Because you're an independent scholar, right? You're not attached to university. And uh, you were in a political party. We'll talk about that later. But now you seem to write in your own personal capacity. So do you consider your work necessarily as academic or is it just political commentary? How would you characterize your output? I think for any political commentary to have any kind of
1: credibility it has to be backed up by references by mm-hmm. uh, you know by, by facts or historical facts etc and that's what I try to do uh, I don't think it makes any sense for anybody to make a political commentary without any backing from mm-hmm. any kind of sources and that's what I, I go to the extent of going back again to the public records office to write my book on May 13 mm-hmm. and I was very happy to go to the the library of the special branch, because they say that they have the best, I I believe that they have the best resources in the country. Mm -hmm. And I would go there and and do it as well. And that's why I think that the actual history of many of the recent uh, history of Malaysia from May 13 onwards should really be fully researched, Mm -hmm. including resources in the special branch archives, you know.
0: Mm Well, let's take a pause right now. We'll return for the second part of the show where we extend the conversation <coughs> on the, in the importance of alternative histories, the importance of writing about it to continue the discourse, to continue the questioning with Dr. Kwa Kya activist, scholar, educator. And this is Night School. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahman, and this is BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fawad Rahma. Joining us this week is Dr. Kwa Kya Sung scholar, activist, and educator, and we are here to talk about alternative histories, particularly his work that's focused a lot on racial politics and the emergency. Now, you are also, to me, an organic scholar in that you constantly participate in civil society, you are outspoken against human rights violations. Do you feel that that necessarily jeopardizes your academic credibility in that there is this expectation that, you know, academics should be constantly, how would you say, apolitical, to observe objectively rather than to be so, you know, in the mire all the time you know <laughs> at, at the front line of activism and stuff like that. What do you say to that?
1: You know, I, I sometimes I feel a bit apologetic to the young activists that I haven't been associated with them. Much closer and much more more often, actually. But this question about whether uh, an academic should be mired in uh, in activism, I think, is is, is definitely a uh, very uh, old-fashioned one, because we know we know of many academics, from Noam Chomsky to uh, to uh, during those, the Vietnam War, uh, the philosopher, you know, what's his no, name, but Macuza, 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 yeah. and, and also the mathematician philosopher, what's his name? Um... Is that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But, I know Lots of Howard Zinn, etc. The others, are others, there are many, many others uh, who are very staunch activists. You know, because they believe that knowledge in a vacuum just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't. <laughs> you have to. You have to uh, express whatever you believe in activism, and, and also that society only changes, history only changes to, uh, in a progressive way yeah. uh, when people uh, take part in in direct action in in the
0: physical. Social arena, and there's also the fact that knowledge is powerful, and that mm. the truth can change minds right and and the power of it just can't be contained in the classroom it has to translate to actual life practices, you know knowing more things should change how you live and look at the world, and the idea that knowledge should just be contained in a certain context is it betrays the power of, of knowing, right? That's right, that's yeah. right. But you went further though, uh, and this is, I mean, feel free to comment however much you want, but you were also involved in the political party, DAP, for some time. Mm-hmm. So what happened then? <clears throat> Set the record straight for us.
1: What happened then? Okay. Uh, it was in the 80s, and uh, I think I was I was involved with the Chinese associations. And I think it, the, what was a game changer for us was in 1985 when the past president, uh, Hari Wang, made a very important speech about how in past kind of uh, belief, philosophy, ideology, racism was not part of Islam, mm-hmm. you know, and that they didn't believe in uh, the kind of racial identification of politics, especially the bumiputra policy. And so that was a game changer for us. And uh, the leaders in Dong Zhong, you know, the mm-hmm. chairman of Dong Zhong and the chairman of of Chiao Zhong, actually uh, organized a dialogue, very important dialogue, the, the past leaders, mm-hmm. And from then onwards, in 1985, in the 86 general elections, the Chinese opposition formed the Civil Rights Committee, which was all over the news, all over the, the Southeast Asian news as well. And we were actually calling on people to support the, the opposition, including pass. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, the, that was the game changer in the sense of PAS being drawn into the opposition coalition. Mm-hmm. And so I find it a, a big denial of all
0: that effort when today we see Pass is no longer in the opposition coalition, mm-hmm. you know. So basically, you saw that with Pass mainstreaming itself with that statement, it, it welcomed new alliances, right? Because it looked beyond race. You felt that that was the right time to give party politics a try.
1: Yes, right. Mm-hmm. And also in 1986, and especially 1990, with the Civil Rights Committee, we we in the in the Civil Rights Committee decided that it was an important attempt, an important gesture to broke this. Two coalition system, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the first time that the, the this two coalition opposition front came into existence, mm-hmm. actually in eighty six, and then it was in, put into a action in, in nineteen ninety when the the civil civil rights activists led by Lim Fong Seng, who was the chairman of Dongzhong at the time, mm-hmm. it, was, it was in the sixties, and we decided to join the, the opposition front, mm-hmm. uh, and it was the DAP at the time, and we had, we had actually thought about join, we had discussed joining the PSRM at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm thinking that maybe that will color the the membership of PRM and they decided it wasn't a very good idea Mm -hmm. and uh, we were not we were dissuaded from joining taking that position and so we ended up joining the uh, DAP.
0: I see so it was uh, really a roundabout direction that led you there it wasn't like necessarily the party platform per se it was just like okay what's the most strategic alliance that's right that's right interest
1: and also because of my my experience in being detained with the DAP leaders in in mm, operation. I was going La to ask you yes, about that. that yeah, uh, you know, operation Lalang was was actually uh, uh, the Barisan's uh, gift mm. of uh, putting all the the opposition politicians together, mm-hmm. and so where where we got to know the DAP leaders and DAP leaders got to know the past leaders, etc. Mm-hmm. And so after our release from detention, it actually brought the opposition front into existence. Mm-hmm.
0: And it didn't deter you either because you kept voicing out and you kept writing. And this wasn't a path that everybody took, right? Because you, we've had academics who continue to stay within the fold of a political party, right? Uh, Dr. Saqusin Ali, for example, right? And he he's still steadfast in a political party, right? But you decided to continue writing. So what was it that made you stick on that path instead of continuing the party line?
1: Well, first and foremost... Human beings, mm. and we're all sort of uh, the people. who are going to to uh, academia. We're intellectuals, mm. and if we betray our intellectual integrity just because of some political or careerist kind of uh, reasons, I think it's a, it's a great betrayal of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And especially look at um, the age I am now. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm in my mid sixties. Life is not very long, and, and if you're going to betray your your integrity for some political uh, career or whatever it is uh, i think i think it's a great
0: betrayal of yourself but ideals anything. have to be met with feasibility and practicality right so this is the common response to people who still want to be radical past their 40s, you know, and I'm 36, so sometimes I'm wondering, like, how much longer can I keep this up, you know? Mortgages, bills, all that is going to, like, maybe, like, hammer me back down to earth or something. But you, as a scholar of the emergency, you lived through the 80s where there were vibrant left parties who rose and fell, right? There are not many left PSM, you know, the comrades that are still holding the flag in that sense. You are also active in Gabungan Kiri. So you haven't really relented, right? So knowing... How many times the left has just been defeated over and over again, decade after decade? Mm-hmm. What keeps you steadfast? Basically the world affairs, I mean
1: our our, our little pawn, you know, little pawn in Malaysia is not really the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to look at the global global politics and see where things are going. And most of all we we have to analyze the world and our own society in the light of how capitalism develops mm-hmm. and what capitalism does and how capitalism evolves, but one thing that doesn't change is the uh, the livelihood of our people, mm-hmm. the majority of our, our of our people, mm-hmm. and if their livelihood does not progress and if we can see if we can see how their lives could change for the better, you know that at least we can do is to speak out against any kind of you yeah. know, uh, wrongdoing, any kind of
0: injustice, and that's that's, that's all we're doing. So and there's a sense in which, too, when you talk about the world, you look at Europe and you look at Latin America, where the left did experience severe defeats, you know, and but they would, after 20 years, make a comeback, you mm-hmm. know, and then they would be defeated and make tw- a comeback another 20 years, right? So, in that sense, the will of the people can't be underestimated, too, right, because... The idea is that the system is going to push us far enough that we'll want alternatives. The problem, though, is that in Malaysia, we're still compelled by and large through identity politics, right? if not racial allegiances, religious allegiances. So, granted, there were Malay communists, but it seems to me, and maybe you can correct us or clarify to us at this point, overwhelmingly, the Malays had leaned back to either the colonial certainties, of the British, or the feudal elites, right? They were not that persuaded by radical politics. In the 80s too, during the NEP, Malays turned to uh, religious politics rather than class politics. So Malaysia seems to be at this constant, stubborn hold of communal thinking rather than class materialist politics. And that doesn't seem to me like it's going to change. Of course, it's not going to change uh, overnight, but we have
1: in fact my 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 main phd thesis was on class and communalism in malaysia mm-hmm. and i was at pains to analyze how that communalism came into being from british colonial times mm-hmm. and how it how it was used in british colonial policies and how it was taken up especially that that is the the importance of that that alliance formula that you know that racial formula that mm-hmm. independence mm-hmm. which is a predicament that we have inherited you know and it still holds true today mainly because of that communal politics and that, that communism, that populism that has been brought on since the NEP. And that's why I was at pains to analyze the uh, May 13 uh, riots in 1969 and how the, the new class, the new ruling class in 1971 mm-hmm. brought about the NEP and how the NEP has been used as a populist kind of policy mm-hmm. since then and that's very powerful i mean uh, populism in, in all its forms in various other countries in the world you know mm-hmm. you saw it in northern ireland mm-hmm. you saw it in sri lanka you know that kind of stuff that kind of uh, populism using race you know that that is something very difficult when you, when you can actually kind of deliver on some of those populist policies mm-hmm. you know
0: Yeah. How about methodologically, though? Because the left framework, dialectics, for example, did emerge out of a particular turning point in European history, right? You had the relics of the feudal system. You had a very vocal and enriched and innovative bourgeoisie that couldn't feel that the royalty could serve their business interests, right? Um, Then colonialism expanded, so on and so forth. And the turn that... Malaysian history has taken is very, very different. So sometimes I'm hesitant to to use theories and concepts in blanket ways here, right? So our middle class was created by the state It's very indebted to the state in that sense, you know, even though they might not like the ruling party, but the idea that the state should protect certain identities is still very, very compelling. So our middle class isn't the sort of you know, mercantile class that came out of the European sort of feudal system, you know, and, and that led to its own dynamics. So what about your methodology when you look at history to draw these conclusions about what's possible and what's not possible? Do you just, are you an old-fashioned Marxist dialectician or do you modify it as well?
1: I don't know whether the question of modifying, but when I look at this question of the... Um the way in which, through this populist policy, uh, the bureaucracy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, has developed into such a way. Uh, and it's, it's bureaucracy that has grown through historical, uh, colonial, I think it grew during during the emergency as well, the civil and armed forces, armed services, to such an extent that we, we not only had a very big civil service at the time, but coupled with the NEP, when there were more and more state enterprises, in civil service and coupled with the fact that the executive in this country has become more and more centralized mm-hmm. and also more and more expanded so that's the way in which the civil service has expanded and that's the way the middle class has, has expanded as well so some of the contradictions you find in Malaysian economy at the moment revolves
0: around those contradictions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and i think it's something that needs to be uh, turned out in the right way in the end
0: mm-hmm. history has also shown that the weaknesses in a system will also undo it right in that sometimes the most revolutionary thing to do is wait right because the system is gonna turn out in such a way that it cannot sustain itself right Mm. Uh, and there's a there's a line of thought there i mean is it structural agency do we organize against it or do we strategically locate its breakdowns right and Seems to me, progressive in this country will have to opt for the latter, (laughs) Mm -hmm. given that uh, we don't have the means to move the masses at that level, right? So in terms of the great change to come, which I think all progressives sort of hold on to, you know, uh, with hope, what's your diagnosis? Is it a question of people taking matters in their own hands at the ballot box or through the streets? Or is it just a matter of Let's see how this plays out and wait for the system to exhaust itself. I think
1: that two-front system that we fought for in the '80s, you know, is slowly uh, reaching the end of its kind of uh, two-front system. As in. As, as in having a Barisan national and and what we see today as, uh, uh, as a Pakatan right, right. Uh, Harapan system, you know, uh, we're finding that the two are becoming more and more similar. Uh, you know, especially when the Pakatan Harapan today has got the former. Prime Minister as as, the, as its leader. So we're finding the two systems becoming quite similar. And I think that's the time for people to think about an alternative. And I think that, that's why it's important for... Uh, but I don't, th- I don't think that uh, letting the political forces burn themselves out is, is a very uh, realistic alternative. I think people need to actually think, see, organize for the alternative. Mm-hmm. And have to be constantly reminded of what the alternatives could be. You know, it's possible, mm-hmm. you know, and not necessarily, uh, you know, the the kind of uh, politics that the, the two f- coalitions are offering us.
0: Mm-hmm. So where, where do you locate yourself now in terms of your work as an activist, as a writer? I mean, what's next for you? Are you working on a current project right now? Are there things that you want to be more involved in? I know you're involved in the left coalition quite actively as well. So uh, what's next for you?
1: What's next for me? Yeah. I think I consider that the future actually belongs to the young activists, and uh, I will continue to look at activities and, and how things are developing and, and just say and write in the research and whatever I think is... is I don't think I'm, I've i reached a stage where, you know, I can you can be part of that movement where if you're not really actively involved, mm-hmm. then it's... A, then you, you can't really be part of it.
0: You know, when you mentioned Operasi Lalang, and then I'm looking at the situation now and how things are so different in terms of the platform that people have to voice out. Back then, the newspaper was... Well, they had to be licensed. First of all, and it was handled by the whole ministry. Well, it still is, right? Print, at least. And the threat was coming from maybe Haraka, You know, not many other platforms. Maybe The Star at times, there were rogue writers, maybe some rogue editors or whatever. But... The idea was basically that mainstream media belong to the state. Occasionally, there are these smaller platforms for dissenting voices. But even that was seen as a threat. And then you look at what's happening today where everybody's tweeting, everybody has an opinion, and social media has become this site of restlessness and political angst. Is that a promising turn or is it just ultimately people venting and we're quite numb to it too, right? So on one hand it sounds like the opinions are coming to the fore, but on the other hand, it's just on the screen. hasn't translated to action. So at least in terms of the platforms available, do you think that change can happen that way? I think the recent... uh
1: Movements in other parts of the world, you know, has shown that that social media can be very uh, instrumental mm-hmm. in, in, in evoking those changes. But in this country, there was a time when uh, during the R.C. when I could see, and in fact, when social media wasn't as active as it is today, mm-hmm. it was the beginning of the of the internet era, and it was very very active at the time, and you could see that there was a movement there. Mm-hmm. But today, there's a lot of social media, but there's a lot of I don't know that what we call it call it shocks in if you mm-hmm. like, you know, and it's not it's not necessarily congealing in some kind of a a force, but it's there. Mm -hmm. It's it's a new media and it can be powerful,
0: Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I remember having conversations with people who've been in activism for the longest time, where if they want to have a forum or they want to invite people to a launch or something like that, they would have to stand at the corner of a street and pass flyers. Now you just have to like set up a Facebook (laughs) event page and just invite people, right? But There, like you say, you know, dialectically, right, things change, but the contradictions are still there. So now you have these different platforms, but then you don't have that sense of community or you don't quite appreciate the coming together that it brings, right? Because if you were in the 80s and 90s, in your 20s, idealistic and just passing flyers, every person who took the flyer and comes to your event must be very valuable, (laughs) Because, wow, I got a stranger to come to my talk or to this forum or to this book launch. Whereas now it's like, oh, whatever, we only got 20 people. I wish we got 80. You know? but That's right. Yeah. 20 is still a step forward than zero, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I think people who've been around longer can appreciate revolutionary patience. Then now, they young, right, yeah. they just want things fast. And when they don't, then they get burnt out or they lose their idealism. But, I mean, I think you know this, idealism is a discipline too, Right. It's not something that just gonna it's not like the batteries is gonna fuel you forever. It's something you're gonna take care of and nurture and always revisit, you know. So hopefully the generations can talk more and learn stuff. And hopefully that's what you know having you on the show can provide as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I hope so. But the important thing is is to keep your your human integrity alive, you know, that's important. And even if whatever happens to you, whatever whether you become a, a successful career person or whatever it is Whatever happens in the world, knowledge, whatever happens in, in, in another country, that is important as well. And that's the important between narratives. I think it's important that people don't, don't, um, don't blur the question of every narrative is, is relevant. Not, not every narrative is credible. You know? yeah. That's the important thing to, to remind.
0: Yeah, but my senses teaching right now undergrads, they are curious for what's out there. They want to know what's beyond their textbooks. You know, and I keep mentioning to them, like, look, there was an emergency. Some of them are still alive. You know, you just have to like add some people on Facebook, ask if you can meet them and that can be arranged, you know. <laughs> uh, and Kampong sekirin isn't that far away either if you want to take the extra step or if not, you just go to Para. There's so many small towns. Just ask around. Everybody knows some former communists in their 80s or 70s, you know, because, and when I tell them too, like, look, they joined the movement at 18 and 19, right? Nowadays, if you're 18, 19, you're like, still trying to find yourself. Back then, they threw themselves into the revolutionary anti-imperial causes, you know. So right. there's so many ways of being that alternative histories offer, you know. And that's one of the rich things about it, you know.
1: That's right. Yeah. And the important thing is to remember that the anti-colonial movement, you know, people who were anti-colonial were not necessarily communists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're all kinds of people. And when you say that you're anti-colonial, what does what does that mean? Mm-hmm. People forget that the emergency was actually a a crackdown on the labor movement at the time. Mm-hmm. And then they, they used the constitutional crisis as an excuse for having the emergency. And so if if you were a, a worker in a, in a mill or in a mine or in a plantation or wherever wherever you were in the rural areas, your livelihood wasn't very good. At the time, the worker struggles were very, very, uh, in the news all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, it wasn't just because three planters were killed that right. the emergency broke up. That, that's the important thing. Yeah. And so you're not necessarily a communist to be an anti-colonialist. Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: And that's one other thing that we forget too when we brush the emergency as just being about one thing, right? But when you look at it, it was a coming together of various forces against the hegemony that was going to take place right. that was really adamant on staying that's in the right. country, right? And uh, when,
1: when we think of the Hatal in 1947... Yeah, yep. Hattal was successful mainly because the uh, not just the workers were were having a strike but even the businessmen were having a strike mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. at the time the the i think the chinese scheme of commerce was also in the in, in part of the hotel mm-hmm. so it was a, a national national uh, you know strike and and that that's were were the people in the chinese chamber of commerce communists i don't think so
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's unfortunately the time we have today now before we wrap up we always welcome recommendations for books i mean patriots and pretenders is one that i like actually from from what you've written actually it's in the special part of my book collection so i recommend it highly that's available pretty much at major bookstores Grab Budaya as well definitely mm-hmm. they'll have a copy right what else do you have in mind for us I
1: would think that the most important book to read is Anthony Short's uh, called The Communist Insurrection in Malaysia because that is the mm-hmm. official record mm-hmm. by the Malaysians besides MU mm-hmm. it was also uh, the will of the Malaysian government at the time for that official record to be written mm-hmm. and so that there has to be a, a essential reading for people who were interested in the emergency because the emergency was actually what led to Merdeka. Mm-hmm. So it is an important history that people should read. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Now, you've mentioned Anthony Short's book a lot. Now, before we wrap up, any critiques of it? Because I know that, you know, you're, you're always reading with a critical lens and we don't have that much time. But some of the things that we should keep in mind when we get the book, like when we look at, like, I know it's also an official document. So it has its own agenda despite it being quite comprehensive, right? What would you tell potential readers of that book? Yeah, I suppose the important
1: thing about some like Anthony showed is that he was first and foremost an academic. Mm-hmm. You know, he was an academic and by definition an academic has to have some kind of integrity. Mm-hmm. And when you are put at your disposal all the classified documents to write a book on the emergency, you know, you, you just write it all down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the positive as well as. For example, uh, let's see, he wrote his book, he submitted his book in sixty eight, the Batankali mm-hmm. Massacre. Well, revealed in 1970, when the My Lai massacre happened in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and some some Royal Scot, Scotsman uh, said in England at the time, "There is nothing new because we did it in Batang Kali. Mm-hmm. You know, so so these things are actually in his report mm-hmm. as plus the Kachao and, and the other you know uh, mm-hmm. more atrocities, extreme kind yeah. of atrocities. Yeah, very uh, extensive. Huh? So,
0: yeah. all right. Well, thank you. Are you on Twitter? No, But sorry. you are on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, and People yes. can just look you up if they want to get in touch right. with you That's to continue this right. conversation. Yes, but and thanks, thanks a lot. We're glad you're on the show this time. We've been trying to get you for a while too, but, you know, things just happen and delays after delays. Now, you can also email the show, bfmnightschool.gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook. Or just type BFM Night School on the search space. And be sure to download our app as well. You can get that at the Apple App Store and Google Play. Once again, I'm Amat Fatrahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us
1: on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.